Welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Warren Cook, co-founder, president, and CEO of Symbians HR, who provides strategic oversight for service delivery, business operations, and technical guidance on consulting engagements. He is a human resources subject matter expert with over 20 years of experience as a strategic business partner, project manager, and people leader across private and public sector organizations. Warren is responsible for the strategic planning of all client consulting engagements from initial needs assessment and compliance review through delivery of customized strategic solutions that meet the client's business goals. He has a proven track record of providing executive coaching and guidance to business leaders and human resource professionals at all levels, including the C-suite of Fortune 100 companies. Warren holds a Bachelor of Science in Human Resource Management and an MBA in Project Management, an MS in Industrial and Organizational Psychology, and is a SHRM certified professional. Warren is on the board of directors for the Delaware chapter of the Society for Human Resource Management and the author of Applicant Interview Preparation, Practical Coaching for Today. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to VC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Warren, go ahead. Great. Thank you for that introduction, Catherine. I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for joining us here today and taking time out of your day to learn a little bit more about human resources and how you can use uh, various strategies to protect your business through risk management of your employment practices. I'm going to start off today with um, kind of getting a fundamental or foundational uh, approach to what is human resource management, because there's a lot of different perspectives and views on what this even means in the industry. So as you can see on this slide, um, it's the systematic execution of policies, processes, and procedures that maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of your organization's workforce. And that's designed to help you achieve the highest level of profitability while also simultaneously minimizing your risk and liability for the business. So while historically HR has been viewed as an expense and a way to um, just do some transactional work, human resource management, if executed effectively today, really is a strategic partner in your business to identify how to make your workforce more profitable while overall just protecting your organization. And since the real key focus of today is about risk management, we are going to talk about a lot of the laws and we're going to kind of go through the entire life cycle of an employee through your workforce and address where there's risks along the way that you need to be cognizant of, as well as take proactive uh, and strategic approaches to protecting the business. 
what you have in front of you is an example of a, a list of various laws and regulations that you may or may not be familiar with that impact or address um, issues that uh, will affect your business, sometimes all of your businesses, sometimes it'll be based on the size of your business, the geographic location of your business. Uh, but for the most part, these, this list here is your federal regulations. And we'll go from the top to the bottom with Fair Labor Standards Act, that addresses the exempt and non-exempt status of your workforce, those who are eligible for, uh, for uh, overtime compensation and those who are not, who's required to be paid minimum wage and not. Family Medical Leave Act touches on protections afforded to individuals and organizations with 50 or more employees and allows them to take a leave for themselves or dependents uh, and family members when they're serious health conditions. There's a number of anti-discrimination laws in various Title VII uh, of the Civil Rights Act and other laws that are uh, uh, in various types of forms uh, in different uh, statutes and jurisdictions. Uh, equal employment opportunity uh, for all employees. You have OSHA for safety uh, and uh, health administration and various organizations to uh, assist and protect the, the uh, safety of your workers and ensure a safe work environment. The Uniform Services and Reemployment Act, Rights Act, uh, is about service members coming back into your workforce who were deployed on active duty. Then you have the ADA as amended, which is expanding every year as far as application and case law. And uh, for the most part, you probably don't know any anybody um, in your organization who um, directly might express that they have a disability, but right now, statistically, one in four people in a workplace have something that may qualify as a disability under ADA. So this is really an area, once you get over 15 employees, that you have to pay special attention to uh, with your workforce and organization. Once you have employees, you're going to have workers' compensation insurance and then unemployment insurance to protect uh, the organization and pay into a fund uh, to help those displaced workers who um, uh, don't meet the expectation of your organization or who are uh, terminated from your employment. Organizations have requirements around when they can and cannot do a polygraph or lie detector testing. And then what you really need to know is that many states and local municipalities have a plethora of regulations that impact your business. And this is becoming more and more prevalent uh, state-related uh, regulations, whether it's California with their overtime rules or Colorado or uh, Maryland and Arizona and others who are rolling out uh, mandatory paid leave acts, parental leave acts. So it's really critical to understand what's not only federally mandated, but also what's going on in your state. And it just sounds very overwhelming and complex here um, because it is, and it, it is challenging to stay ahead of the game with all this. But the most important item on this slide that I want to bring to your attention is that your employees assume you're doing things right. And it's usually when that assumption changes for some reason, either an action, activity, an event, or they hear something different elsewhere, that you start having some liability and exposure because perhaps you're not complying or following the federal or state law. So keep that in mind that employees generally believe that their employer is doing the right thing. <clears throat> so starting at the beginning of the talent acquisition process, and when you're going to bring an employee into your organization, we think about all these steps that are on the uh, on the screen in front of you here. You've got from posting a vacancy all the way through to when you hire that individual and then you launch them. And what I usually ask individuals, especially small businesses that I consult with or work with, is I try to understand which of these stages of the process create risk for your business. And I've been told the front end, the back end, maybe it's when you make the hire. Um, but the answer, unfortunately, is every stage of the process. 
Uh, at each stage, you have various risks and uh, liability exposure. And recruitment does become one of the most critical processes to support the success of your business because it's that human capital and those assets that you're hiring that are going to allow you to provide your products and services to your clients and customers. There's tremendous risk and reliability inherent in the recruitment process from your initial job description development and your job postings to how you screen applicants all the way through the interview process and then hiring. And the biggest major risk here is the discrimination, failure to hire and discrimination suits that expose your organization to significant financial risk uh, if found guilty of doing something that you could very simply and easily avoid. <clears throat> Bad hires become very costly, which is another reason why recruitment is so critical to your practice and to your business. On average, about 30% of the annualized salary is the cost of a bad hire. And a lot of individuals believe that the cost of a bad hire is simply how much time you spent training the person, and maybe if you spent a fee on a placement or headhunting firm, or the cost to pay their salary. Um, but what is also forgotten is all the time and resources spent into the recruitment process, and all the time spent in training them as well as onboarding them. The technology, the transactions, the benefits, other things you put in place for the individual. But the most critical gap or piece that impacts your profitability or your return on this investment is the productivity loss. And when that person's gone, or if you hire somebody that ends up leaving, you lose that productivity. And then you generally other employees have to pick up the burden, which creates morale issues or um, employee relations issues. So a bad hire can be costly. And the question I often ask is, what is the greatest risk to an employer during the recruitment process? And amazingly enough, I get answers all across the board as far as it could be your questions, it could be uh, the setting, the location. Um, the greatest risk is generally your hiring managers or your supervisors or, or owners or whoever it may be who's doing the interview. And we're going to explore that a little bit because you can't control and can't talk about, can't uh, dictate what the applicant or the person you're interviewing is going to say, but you certainly can have as much control as possible on the interviewer. The risks of doing the interview process and the talent acquisition process wrong is a discrimination lawsuit. You could have unfair and inconsistent hiring practices. You may not be documenting the interview process properly um, or maintaining appropriate record keeping around just the recruitment as a whole. And then you have to be able to defend the process that you executed in order to do that hire. And while a lot of people say, oh, if, if, if I got audited or if I was in a lawsuit, I could easily explain what happened. The goal for HR professionals in working with businesses is to help make sure that that process is explained without you in the room. In other words, your paper trail and your documentation should be able to defend what happened clearly and concisely without anyone else having to give it context uh, upon review. So when you start this process and you're getting resumes in, let's talk about things you should ask yourself when you're reviewing resumes. You want to understand if the information you're reviewing and reading is clear. Uh, is it actually demonstrating value? You could have a lot of bullets on a page that start off with responsible for this, responsible for that. And if you really think about it, you shouldn't care whether or not the person you're interviewing was responsible for things at their job. You're more interested or should be more interested in whether or not they actually did those tasks and how they did it and were they successful. You want to make sure that the, th the information you're reading demonstrates experience to you. 
not that they could do something, but that they did do something? And is it more of a job description than actually a presentation of experience and accomplishments? And I like to talk about something that I refer to as situation action results, SAR. Not only when you're writing a resume, but when you're interviewing somebody and reviewing resumes, you really want to focus on their ability, both in the resume and the interview responses, to explain what were they doing, what action did they take, and what were the results. Because if you think about what you're going to have this individual do in your workplace, you want to know the same thing. You want to know what type of results are they going to produce to support your success and your revenue stream in selling your products and services. The interview process itself, we want to talk about the purpose of the interview process. And here's some questions I want you to think about and consider as I, as I present to you here. Um, is the process itself an inclusive process or an exclusive process? Generally, people tell me it's an inclusive process. We're trying to hire somebody. But I'm going to try and uh, alter that paradigm when I walk through what the, uh, what the response or answer is to that. What is the purpose of conducting an interview? What is the best way to accomplish that purpose? And how do you go about preparing for an interview or the topics we're going to cover next? So an interview process, if you think about it as a funnel, you have all of your applicants coming in the top of this funnel. And you have no idea whether they're qualified, whether they're local, whether they meet your minimum qualifications, whether they're experienced, whether they have the industry knowledge. So the reality is at every stage of the process, you're narrowing that funnel, which means it's an exclusive process. You are going through a process of elimination. Especially if you have one open position and you get 100 applicants, it surely isn't inclusive that you're going to bring all those individuals into the process. In fact, you're excluding 99 of them if you hire one. And so each stage of the process, you move down from all to maybe you're minimally qualified, maybe you have a first round screen, maybe there's a technical interview. Um, but I just want to change your mindset and thinking about the interview process as you're trying to identify who doesn't fit first so that you're left with qualified individuals to really determine who's the most qualified and best fit for your organization. You should be performing a consistent and legally compliant review of the applicants for a particular position, which means you should have a job description or some definition of essential functions that you're comparing against and those minimum qualifications. You should have a means of securing the same information from all the applicants. If you think about the different resumes you've seen over your career, whether it's on thick bond paper, whether it's highlighted, whether it's bold, whether it's three pages or five pages or one page, that information is never consistently presented by the applicant. The most efficient and effective way to gather the same data from all applicants is to ensure you have an employment application uh, in place and that that application is compliant with any state or federal laws around the information you can ask pre-offer stage. You also want to make sure management has an opportunity to select the most qualified individual for their position. And so the purpose of that interview is to gather the same consistent information from all applicants and be able to compare apples to apples as best as possible. When preparing for the interview, you want to make sure you're familiar with the job description, the duties, the requirements of the position you're fulfilling. Uh, you also want to make sure that you as an interviewer can answer questions about the organization. Often HR uh, professionals or an office manager will handle questions about benefits and pay and compensation and work hours, but you certainly want to talk to the uh, applicant about the business itself, the history of the business, the goals, the vision, the mission, uh, make sure that you can represent yourselves as having that knowledge. Have specific questions that you're going to ask all applicants 
so that you're not all over the place and that it's a consistent process. You don't want three people on a panel asking 12 different questions in each interview um, that uh, show that you couldn't compare one applicant to another fairly. Make sure the questions are organized and always review the application and the resume before you walk in the room. There's nothing worse than feeling like that interview panel is the first time they're looking at your information and then you've got time wasted because they're not kicking off the interview. I'm going to briefly cover some of the do's and don'ts. And as Catherine said, this, this deck is available and, and is uh, going to be distributed. So we'll have all the details. There's a lot of small print because there's a lot of don'ts uh, as far as the interview process. And we want to make sure you have a comprehensive list of things you should avoid during that interview process. Uh, and you know, think about for yourself, what topics should you stay away from and who often triggers topics that should be avoided. And if you think about an interview, if you get the, uh, your hiring manager, your interviewers trained extremely well on the law, the risk then becomes that applicant. And it's nearly impossible to prevent an applicant from saying something that's not appropriate or leading to the interview team down a bad path. And I'll give you some examples of that in a little bit. But in almost all cases, the following topics should be avoided in an interview. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be avoided in your process, that they're going to be avoided from an application process or background check. But during an interview, there's no reason to touch on any of these topics. And you'll see next to each one of these topics, age is irrelevant unless there's labor law violations and you're talking about minors in the workplace. Um, association with the present employees doesn't really matter as far as qualifications for the job. Credit and bankruptcy is, is not relevant unless the position is specifically designed in a financial role. And even then, you need to make sure you're following the Fair Credit Reporting Act in all aspects of it and make it job relevant. Citizenship would be handled on your application as well as the I-9 process subsequent to an offer. And you don't want to cover anything related to disability because, as I said earlier, most individuals have some way, shape, or form qualify under ADA for having a disability. And so if you're not focusing on the essential functions of the role and what that person can do for your business, you're really missing an opportunity to do it not only compliantly, um, but do it effectively for your business. Driver's license is usually not worth asking during an interview. It's not relevant at that stage. Um, whether or not they attained education, you should have found out on the application or other aspects of it earlier. Emergency contact information is not relevant to whether or not someone's qualified. And the list goes on. Height and weight can go under ADA as well. Their marital status. Avoid asking people about how many children they have. Do they have daycare? They have to pick kids up, drop them off. All those categories get you in hot water and start falling onto areas where they would be considered protected characteristics under federal and state law. And you want to do your best to stay away from any risk or exposure uh, in those areas. We have the most common understanding of these, these don'ts in an interview process with race, religion, color, sexual orientation. Um, all these are protected uh, in just about every state and every jurisdiction across the country. Uh, veteran status, military records, uh, there's only certain circumstances where you're going to do a lot of that inquiry on the front end, um, but you can certainly ask that at some stage and you have legal rights to give preferential treatment, but not really something to discuss during the interview process. So here's a quick scenario of what might happen in an interview and uh, applicant shows up for the interview, they come in the conference room, they have a cane, they put it behind the door, they sit down, and then you as the interviewer notice a significant limp when they walk to the chair and sit down. During the interview, the applicant repeatedly talks about discomfort and they struggle to get up at the closure of the interview. And I want you to think to yourself, what would you do in that situation? How would you handle it? 
what are the risks involved? And then what's the real question you should ask in an interview in this type of scenario? And you may come across similar scenarios throughout your career, but you just learned what you wouldn't do and some of the things you shouldn't ask. The potential risks here are discrimination for a disability. And you want to avoid asking anything related to why that person is limping or why they're sharing discomfort. The critical question you ask in this situation, which you should ask every applicant, not only those you perceive to have a disability or problem, is can you perform the essential functions of this role with or without an accommodation? All you want to hear is yes or no. At this point in the process, you move forward either way uh, as far as next steps in the conversation. But if they say, yes, I can perform the essential functions, continue as normal. If they say, no, I cannot perform the essential function of this role, even with an accommodation, you can end the interview because they've just admitted and shared with you that they cannot do the job. So there's some touchy areas there of, of the specifics of what they say and how they say it. But the key, the key takeaway is essential functions of the job and can they do the job with an accommodation. If you are interviewing a person with disabilities, here's things you should do. You want to make sure the facility is accessible. You want to make sure that they have special parking if needed. Allow them time to prepare. Um, make sure you have the essential functions available to share with them, the job description. Um, make eye contact. Talk directly with them. If there's ever an interpreter in the room, you should not talk to the interpreter. You should look and talk to the individual. Uh, sit down so that the person who uses a wheelchair, if they're in one, can make contact with you easily. And always ask about their ability to perform the job which is the key. What you shouldn't do is assume they can shake your hand in a greeting. Don't lean on someone's wheelchair, and I'm sure some of you will chuckle when you see that, but I've had it happen, and it's uh, unfortunate. Don't raise your voice or shout if you think someone is hard of hearing. Don't ever touch a C&I dog. They're there working and doing a job for that individual. And then, as you can see, the rest of them, you shouldn't be asking about history, any kind of medical history, whether it's workers' comp, disability, those other things are really inappropriate during the interview process. You really just want to find out whether or not they can perform the, the, the position that you're interviewing for. So moving away from that, let's just talk about overall techniques when you're trying to reach your goals in an interview process, and we'll move on to the next stage of the life cycle. Listen as much as you can, and listening to learn about that person means that you can't be talking the entire time. Avoid telling people what you want to hear. A lot of times in their interviewers will ask a question, the applicant pauses or is hesitating, and so they throw out part of the answer inadvertently to say, well, what we mean is X, Y, and Z. And next thing you know, the person says, oh, sure, I do X, Y, and Z. And now you heard what you were hoping to hear, and you document it as if they knew it and they did. Remain impartial. Don't let the interview know too much about you personally. Always reflect back on what the person's saying and ask them to tell you about it again. Um, ask them to repeat the last phrase doesn't matter how you go about asking it, but give them the opportunity to ask those questions and uh, uh, you know, think about what they're saying rather than knee-jerking. Let candidates interrupt you. Uh, sometimes someone will remember something a few minutes after they're done answering something, and as long as it's professional and respectful, let them interrupt because you're going to want to know the information they're sharing. But if it's inappropriate or unprofessional, make sure you address that. Only record what you heard and build rapport with that individual because potentially if they're doing well, you'll be working with them. Some organizations ask me about how to decipher and determine whether or not someone is being honest on an interview. And here's three strategies you can think about to help you when it's um, a matter of integrity and trust and honesty during the question. Some individuals, when you ask another question, will simply say, we've already covered that. I've answered you already. We've, we've, we've gone over that. 
that's usually a sign that something's wrong and you might not be getting the most honest or accurate answer. So go ahead and ask them again and ask them to complete that question. If someone gives you negative information, don't immediately jump all over that negative response because they may be getting ready to tell you how they handled that situation, which would be positive, such as a employee relations issue or a harassment issue in the workplace where they reported it properly and they notified people, but they might start off with the story that sounds negative. Um, and then the other piece of it is everyone makes mistakes. And so if they do share something negative and you don't overreact and you handle it appropriately, you can learn about how they learn from that situation. What do they do about it? Because if it happens in your workplace, you'd want to know what they're going to do and how they handle it. And then finally, if someone tells you a story that just sounds fabricated or that they're misrepresenting, ask them to tell you the story in reverse. And you'll find that most people can't lie backwards. Uh, and so I find it very interesting when someone tries to recant a story that's not true and they uh, get all caught up in themselves and then you find out that that's not somebody you're going to move forward with and, and hire anyway. So why must you document an interview? What should you document and what shouldn't you document? You have to document an interview so that you're able to defend your actions and your hiring decisions. You should document what you heard you should, and you should document uh, in a timely manner during the interview. But you should not document anything discriminatory, anything that's a protected characteristic. You shouldn't be uh, jotting down, they said they have three kids, Timmy, Tommy, and Joey, and wife's Maria, and she's sick, and this one's that. Don't jot those things down. You will be told those things in interviews, but do not document them. You're documenting responses and answers to your questions in a timely manner and factually. And be very cautious when you're documenting as to embellishing based on what you think you heard. So if someone said, I work with Microsoft Excel spreadsheets, you shouldn't write, they analyze data and prepare budgets in Excel. Only write down what you heard. Documentation is very critical. And in the recruitment process, it is important to keep those records for compliance purposes. You have a two-year record retention on maintaining these records. Let's talk about the interview itself very briefly. There are really two um, mindsets around interviewing. You have traditional interviewing and behavioral interviewing. Traditional are often hypothetical situations, cognitive, personality, uh, tell me about yourself, why do you want to work here, strengths and weaknesses. They're not necessarily terrible, but for the most part, hypothetical situations are not helpful in making decisions in the interview process. For example, if you ask somebody, have you, could you work with an irate customer? Could you deal with an angry patient? The answer is going to be yes, no matter what, because they're in an interview trying to get the job. Um, but you also aren't learning anything about them. And so when we talk about behavioral interviews, behavioral interviews are more about how the work was done in the past is going to be similar behavior as to how they're going to perform work in the future. And so that first bullet there, which says provide an example of when you dealt with an irate customer, this is going to force a scenario response, something with some details. They're going to set up, set the stage of what was happening and how they dealt with it. It'll be much more revealing for you to ask behavioral questions rather than hypothetical questions because it proves they've had the prior experience doing what you need them to do. For example, if you ask somebody, do you prioritize your work? They're going to say yes. If you ask this third bullet, how do you prioritize your work? And what have you done when priorities have changed? You're going to get a significantly more in-depth response that will help you make your decision in the interviewing process.
And there's a lot of theories and, and uh, psychology behind behavioral interviewing, why it's effective, and how it will help you secure the most qualified applicants that will be successful in your work environment. Some final reminders, interviewers should stay focused on the job requirements. Remember that someone who interviews very well may have had a lot of practice interviewing and might have been unemployed for a while. Understand that if someone's very uncomfortable and very nervous, they may have been with a company for 20 years and got laid off after never having to have interviewed at all. Maybe for 20 years they were promoted or moved up just through networking or just through the structure of the organization and have no experience whatsoever interviewing. You have to have the patience on both sides to deal appropriately with that type of applicant. If they're over shiny, so to speak, make sure you're digging deeper on those questions. And if they're inexperienced, help them get that information out of their head and share with you what they're capable of doing. Make sure at the end you're selling the company while keeping the pitch realistic. There's nothing worse than someone joining a company and a month later quitting, costing you a lot of money because the expectations you set were unrealistic and then the person was dissatisfied because the expectations didn't meet reality. Make sure you elicit questions and provide information that give you anything you need to know before that applicant leaves. Make sure you end on a friendly note and apprise that candidate of what next steps are for them. Complete your documentation while it's fresh in your mind because if you're interviewing multiple people, you will quickly forget or life catches up with us and you're busy at work, we all are, and you may just forget to get to it and it will make decision making challenging later. Finally, make a fair and unbiased recommendation or decision based on those uh, job-related qualifications of the applicant. So let's change gears now. You've hired somebody, they're in the workplace, and we're going to talk a little bit about leave management and what you have to do to manage those workers. This individual called out from work. They told their supervisor that they were performing yard work at home. They said it's not too bad. They need to be out all week. They'd probably be back. And then they said they're going to be in a Thursday and Friday. What would you do? What are the risks in this scenario? What are they? How are they? How do you handle them? And as a supervisor, what should you be thinking about and doing? And the biggest piece of that process is making sure that you do not allow that person to return to work without medical clearance. You want to have a proper process in place to manage the worker's compensation event. If it was a workplace injury, if it wasn't workplace injury, you want to make sure that you have a return to work program so that you're getting medical clearance and letting someone else decide if they're able to work. You want to have leave policies and consistent practices that apply to all the individuals in your workforce so that no one claims that you're unfair to them for some protected reason. And then organizations need to recognize whether or not they have to comply with the ADA as far as the accommodation process, and that's 15 or more employees, or whether they're co covered under the FMLA, which is 50 or more employees. Leave man management can become very challenging, and it's also detrimental to business operations because you don't have resources available. So attacking the problem head on, addressing it strategically, making sure you have processes and practices established to handle when someone's out on leave is very important to make sure your business continuity uh, is effective and you can sustain your success. If you don't comply with the regulations regarding leave management and the um, uh, when people are out of the office, uh, you can expose yourself to financial liability. If you're not consistent, it could be construed as discriminatory. Um, you want to protect an injured worker from returning to work too soon because then you expose yourself to a worker's compensation claim. You also expose other employees to risk or danger if something happens because an injured person causes another problem. So the 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 confidence in you bringing someone back to work should be based on medical clearance. 
Lack of documentation could lead to improper pay practices during leave absence, whether it's unpaid, paid leave, whether or not they have any kind of disability programs in place, um, and whether or not they have any time off uh, from a vacation or paid time off perspective. And benefit eligibility can also be impacted while an employee is out on leave. And so make sure you're familiar with what those rules in your summary plan descriptions and the uh, eligibility criteria are for your plans so that you can determine if a COBRA event has been triggered, which would require payment from the employee for those medical premiums. Measuring and managing your employees. Why should you measure? Why should you tie to KPIs? Because you want to make sure whether or not expectations you have for each position are met. And you want to help identify whether the employee is actually performing their role successfully. <clears throat> the reason you're doing that is you're paying them a salary, you're paying them a wage. And so you want to make sure they understand what's expected of them and how to go out doing it. You should use SMART goals when you're setting up your performance reviews and you're setting up goals. And this means that the goals are specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, they're realistic, and they're time bound. And if you do that in your goal setting, you're going to have a lot easier time holding somebody accountable and providing that feedback. Feedback should be regular, should be consistent, and comprehensive. Give positive feedback as well as negative feedback. People learn from their mistakes, so if you're able to identify a mistake early on, give them that feedback constructively. You usually can turn around an employee and help them be more productive and more successful. And I often urge organizations to use the term corrective action versus discipline or disciplinary action because you don't want it to necessarily be punitive the goal was to improve the behavior of that worker so that they can be successful and your organization can be as well. And all of these activities should be well documented. Documentation is extremely key. Peter Drucker, very well-known business management expert. If you don't measure it, you can't improve it. And that is the same for an employee in your workforce. When you're performing reviews or giving feedback, you want to really be careful with implicit bias. Implicit bias refers to your attitudes and stereotypes that you affect our understanding, and how we deal with the world around us. But it's more of an unconscious uh, behavior. They're developed at a young age, they're embedded in how you behave and you interact with society. And so these attitudes can blend into how you review someone's performance, how you evaluate your peers, your managers, your employees. And so since it's unintentional, you wanna try to identify your own biases and then work towards um, improving them, changing your mindset and having a greater diversity of thought so that you can um, engage your workforce more effectively and have efficient trusting relationships with them. When you are performing uh, uh, performance evaluations or providing feedback, make sure your organization clearly defines what is a good performer, bad performer, and meeting expectations. So often people say if someone comes to work and they're cheery and they're bubbly and they interact with everybody and they're fun to work with, that makes them a good performer Someone who comes in, puts their head down, gets the work done and leaves is not. Really level set that because both of those scenarios, the person is getting paid to come to work, do the work and, and meet the expectations. And so clarify what that means effectively for all of your employees and you'll have an easier time managing that performance. Always make sure your feedback for performance is timely. Make sure it's honest. Make sure you tie it to set expectations. Like we said, you're gonna set these goals together with the employees, you're gonna use SMART goals. Make sure you tie those evaluations to those goals you set. Don't just tell somebody they need to get better. Do more, work harder. Those are not really good guidance terms for someone who you wanna see some change in behavior. Instead, make sure you articulate exactly what that performance gap is clearly and describe what you expect. It should not be an annual event. 
it's the role of every supervisor daily, giving feedback, managing performance, measuring performance. You may have a formalized process that wraps up annually to tie it to compensation, but I usually recommend a, a one-to-one -one meeting with their employees at minimum every two to three weeks so that you're staying in touch, addressing problems early, and working towards uh, the common success of the individual and the, and the business. Documentation is important and know that email is discoverable if there's a litigation or lawsuit. And so if you terminate somebody for performance or you terminate somebody for conduct or something in their reviews, and then they find out that there's emails from you saying how great a job that person did, or here's kudos from so-and-so, you're gonna have conflicting documentation. So be very careful with how you document what's going on in your workforce. When you think about corrective action or discipline, whichever terminology you use, it should be used to correct unacceptable behavior. It should be timely, it should be well-documented, it should be communicated effectively, and don't sugarcoat. I had someone recently tell me they love to Oreo cookie an employee. They love to go in and tell them something positive, slip in the negative, and then end with something really positive so they feel good. The problem is the only thing the employee heard was great things and they ignored the uh, negative and they weren't set expectations and there was no clarity and so behavior doesn't change and there's still a problem. So manage that conflict, don't avoid it. Corrective action is issued by a manager or a supervisor or the business. It's not negotiated. You're not asking them if you can give them corrective action. You're giving the corrective action. Email is discoverable, so be careful about how you document those things. And a good example of documenting behavior in the workplace that you want corrected would be something that always includes these three components. You want to make sure the subject line of your email indicates it's unacceptable behavior or that you're giving corrective action feedback. And then the three components of the content should include what was done incorrectly, what's the expectation going forward, and what's the consequences for not meeting those expectations. So again, what happened, what's the expectation, and what is the consequence for not meeting those expectations and often including a timeline. So. Hopefully you'll be able to use those three little bullets as far as uh, crafting those documents and you're gonna have much more success in changing behavior. When you think about separation and knowledge transfer, there's voluntary versus involuntary. So if they quit, it was uh, voluntary. If you're terminated, it's involuntary. And the at-will concept of at-will employment, really wanna spend a second here and say, at-will employment means you can fire somebody or they can quit anytime for any reason. But what some people don't understand is, well, if that's the case, why do I need all this documentation? Well, absent of the documentation, how do you disprove that it was a discriminatory action? So while at-well employment means you can terminate for any reason whatsoever, you can't terminate for discrimination. So make sure you're thinking about that in your documentation and your practices. You want to capture intellectual capital and transfer information to the remaining workforce before someone leaves. So if someone gives you two weeks notice or is resigning, do your best to capture that through development of a transition plan to get those skills and information moved over. This is another slide of things that are risks in the workplace, not to scare you, but to give you the insight and information. Harassment, discrimination claims, you could have FLSA claims, you could have unsafe working condition claims. People could be told they're prevented from talking about their salaries and you'd run into violations with the National Labor Relations Act. Um, you could have a retaliation claim and even just record keeping violations. So all these things impact business owners and practice managers and uh, physicians offices. So. You really want to be aware of these various things and have a strategy to address all the times throughout the employee life cycle where these things can come up. 
To recognize your greatest asset, the employees can also be your greatest risk in the workforce. Documentation is critical and make sure you know better than your employees what laws impact your business. Real quick, I'm gonna give you some supervisor guidance if you're a new supervisor or if you're supervising and have never had formal training. Always engage your employees immediately. Work together when you're setting these goals with your employees. Communicate how you're gonna measure their performance. Meet frequently. Hold them accountable from day one. Some people say to me, well, they've only been here three or four months. I'm not going to tell them what they're doing wrong yet. Let, let's see how it goes. Big mistake. You want to give honest feedback right away and hold them accountable. Document it. And this highlight bullet down here in red is really critical for everybody on this call who's a supervisor. Your job is to give the employees the tools, resources, and support necessary to be successful. Your job may be technical and management and all other things that have to do with your technical profession. But at the end of the day, if you're managing people, this is a supervisor's role, tools, resources, and support. Then you want to make sure you understand where the employee is in their professional development. And very quickly, I'm going to show you this uh, Melbourne leadership style. If you look at this screen, you're going to see that there's four quadrants of a person's skill sets and how you interact with them as a supervisor. Most people, when they're hired and start a new task, start over at the bottom right. They need a high level of direction and then a little bit of support because they're being told what to do. They'll move through coaching, they'll go into support, and then you just delegate work to them because they become experts in their role and they're able to execute effectively. Every one of your employees are somewhere on this chart for each type of task they perform. The more effective you are as a leader in knowing where they're at, the more effective your engagement will be because it will be appropriate direction, coaching, supporting, or delegation to help make them successful. And people migrate through this in all aspects of the role they perform. Engagement should be periodic. Engagement should be two-way communication. This is about building trust and a relationship with your workforce, giving feedback, and both positive and negative. Always listen more than you're talking because that's how you're going to find out what your employees need. And teach your workforce how to share ideas. It's not just having a suggestion box in the corner. It's about teaching them how you make decisions, what information you need to make those decisions, and then teach them or give them forms and processes to submit their ideas so that they can feel engaged and that they have a say in what's going on and make sure you're giving them feedback on those recommendations. And then measure and correct uh, behavior on a regular basis. Employee relations issues. Make sure you're using your policies to set clear expectations for employees. Use those policies to communicate not only what you want from the employee, but make sure you're communicating what the employee can expect from you. Recognize those complaints and concerns. Respond in a timely manner because failing to respond to your complaints can really get you in trouble and open you yourself up to litigation or risk. Be consistent in how you handle each employee's complaints and then have an unbiased process for how things are investigated and decisions are made in the workplace. Critical with employee relations complaints and reports is how well you document it and that it's accurate and consistent. I'm going to really quickly go through harassment prevention. <clears throat> we all want to prevent this in the workplace. There's so much Me Too mentality going on right now, the Me Too movement. Um, you hear about in the news all the different people being brought uh, charges against and the end result. If you're a business leader, a practice manager, a physician uh, who runs your own business and someone accuses you of something, even if you didn't do it, chances are your business is going to be negatively impacted simply because you're going to be in the front page of a newspaper. 
So sexual harassment is defined as these unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors. And as you can read the rest, it really just unreasonably interferes with a person's performance in the workplace, or it creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive environment. So a lot of things can do that. From sexual harassment, it could be the victim or harasser can be a man or a woman. They don't have to be the opposite sex. The harasser can be a victim supervisor, a coworker, even a customer or a patient could be the harasser. The victim does not have to be the person harassed, and the harassment has to be unwelcome. When these scenarios come together, it really creates for a bad work environment, unproductive work environment, and extremely risky and huge liability for the employer. Quid pro quo is what you hear most about of where it's a this for that, where submission to the conduct is explicit or implicit, and it's a term of condition. If you do this sexual favor for me, we'll give you a bonus. If you don't, I'm not going to give any good work assignments. Harassment itself usually needs to be pervasive and ongoing. Quid pro quo only has to happen one time for it to be illegal. People throw around the term hostile work environment all the time. Uh, and what I'd like you all to know on this call is that there's a huge difference between a hostile work environment based on your policies and procedures and a hostile work environment that is technically illegal activity. And as you'll see in the factor con to consider on this slide, a hostile environment claim requires evidence of an ongoing pattern of offensive conduct applied to a protected class in order to be illegal for Title VII violation. So if someone's bothering you because you wear big earrings or someone's bothering you because they don't like your purple shirt or someone's bothering you because your sneakers are a different color, that's just unprofessional conduct. That's probably a violation of your policy or handbook. But if they're doing that because of your age, because of your gender, because of your race, because of your sexual orientation, it changes your liability as an employer from being a hostile environment that is just unprofessional and needs to be dealt with to a potentially illegal activity and changes the whole scope of your investigation, your documentation, and the action you need to take, as well as your risk and liability. When you think about your own policies, I want you to make sure that your policy prohibits all forms of harassment, whether it's workplace violence, workplace bullying, or just sexual harassment prevention. Um, make sure it prohibits all forms. Describe your responsibility as an employee and supervisor in taking appropriate action when witnessing a violation of the policy or being a victim of it. Outline what's required to report, describe the consequences of the actions, and then provide protection from retaliation. I will tell you if you go online and look at the EEOC's website or even the OFCCP, these are the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the Office of Federal Contract Compliance, um, and you look at the types of claims filed in the United States, most claims, 48% or more of claims are retaliation claims where the initial claim had no validity and they would have lost or they do lose on the merits of that case, but because the employer retaliated, they want a retaliation suit. So Title VII of Civil Rights Act makes it unlawful to retaliate against an employee that files a charge of harassment or participates in an investigation, proceeding, or hearing. So be very cautious and careful if you have complaints in the workplace, get the guidance you need to ensure that those involved do not change their behaviors or actions towards the complainant because it puts you at greater risk than the original merit of the complaint to begin with. So 
this was not intended to scare anybody on the call, but there's a lot of complexity to managing the risk of your employment practices in the workplace. And it can be very dangerous to ignore these problems, practices, or behaviors. And so hopefully you have a little more insight today into uh, the risks that are involved, where the risks come into play, and recognize that you should take some strategic approach to identifying these risks and doing what you need to to protect your workplace, your employees, and most importantly, to protect your business and your practice going forward. So I thank you for your time today, and I think I'm going to turn it over to Catherine to start talking about any questions that have come in. Great. Thank you, Warren. That was a really wonderful uh, presentation. Really, thank you for that. Um, we did have uh, some questions that came in, so I'll uh, go ahead and, and um, let you know what those are. So the first one that we had come in was, how do we, as an employer, determine the FLSA status of a position? Great question. So that goes to whether or not an employee that you have in your workforce is either exempt or not exempt from overtime and minimum wage. Generally, that's done and through a, uh, performing a job analysis, which is exploring all the tasks, duties, and responsibilities of a position, and then uh, determining by comparing it to the Department of Labor regulations under the FLSA, whether or not they meet all three factors, which is the salary basis, are they paid a salary or uh, an hourly wage? Um, are they paid the same amount of salary on a consistent basis that exceeds the salary threshold? Uh, and the third piece, do they meet the duties test? If you think about blue collar, white collar, executive, administrative, professional roles, there are specific duties tests that someone has to compare the role against to determine whether or not they're legally allowed to exempt that role. So great question. It's something that every position and every organization should be evaluated for to make sure they're compliant with the FLSA. Great. Um, then um, are we required to keep any of the recruitment records such as um, the application or interview notes, things such as this? Yes. Um, there's a there's basically a statute of limitations on filing a discrimination or an un, unfair uh, um, hiring lawsuit or failure to hire lawsuit um, that's usually two years statute of limitations. So your record keeping obligation for any of the recruitment files is two years. That includes the application, your job posting, all of your interview notes, anything that goes on through that process. If you have recommendation documents, if you have any kind of scales or rating system. Uh, your applicant tracking files. So two years record retention to, to uh, protect yourselves if there was a claim, but it's also critical to destroy those records after two years so that you comply with the law, the record retention was met, but now there's no possibility of having to have records that you should no longer have. I have a question. Um, since, I'm, since I am not you know, in HR, um, so I have a question on that. Um, how often does that come up that people um, you know, that there is some kind of litigation in, uh, you know, some kind of lawsuit on um, that somebody was not hired, uh, discrimination type of suit. The frequency is, is more prevalent the larger the organization because two things are happening. Either they see dollar signs and are just trying to create a scenario where they can sue and hope to get a settlement. And that happens where the applicant might not have had much experience, but during the interview process, they will literally share things and say things that they know uh, expose the interview team to ask questions that are inappropriate. And then they claim, um, you know, hey, this happened during the interview. That's why I wasn't hired. Um, outside of that, you will have uh, the large organizations with large applicant pools, individuals feeling that they were the most qualified. 
uh, through the process and they will file suit. The process, though, it's free to file. You can go to the EEOC or, or the uh, local Department of Labor and file a, a suit for free. The process is, do you have any evidence or proof that will allow the government agency to actually move forward with the suit is the issue. And so it's very difficult to get that type of claim move for forward, but it becomes very time-consuming and costly for the employer to have to defend it. And the only way to defend it is with their documentation. So I wouldn't say it's a frequent event because the uh, applicant usually isn't armed with much information. It usually happens if the applicant knows who ultimately was hired and they say, wait a minute, I know that person, I'm more qualified, I'm going to sue them. Got it. Got it. Well, that's super interesting. All right. Um, it's interesting if you're not uh, on the end of the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> interesting information, I guess. All right. Um, oh, okay. Actually, this this next question actually I find very interesting because um, we had a a law that was passed in Delaware that has to um, do with this question um, very recently. So um, this next question is: um, Can we ask applicants how much they were paid at their prior employer? So great question. Um, from a philosophical or best practices, I've been coaching businesses for 20 years to not ask questions. Um, and now Delaware, as well as a few other states in the U.S., and there's a movement towards this, have recognized that uh, it's not a good idea, and I'll explain why in a second, but have prohibited the act. Not only are you not allowed to ask an applicant during the interview process what their prior wages were or what the prior earnings were, but you also can't ask on the employment application. And companies who are not in Delaware or the other states that have passed these laws and are hiring people out of Delaware, it is illegal to ask the Delaware resident whether or not what their past wages were. Um, this is a movement to help balance discrimination against females. If historically, not if, historically females have been underpaid in most uh, industries and most professions, and if they were underpaid at their last job and you base the offer on that past compensation, you are perpetuating and promulgating the discrimination inadvertently. So if you stop asking about what they made and focus on what you are going to pay for that role, you'll have much greater success and avoid that discrimination. Right. I was very happy when I uh, saw that uh, passed. Oh, I love it. I saw that. Uh, yeah. I saw that some other states have that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Why perpetuate that? Um, so that's a very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. It would be a perpetuation of that. Right. You're, you're basically creating systemic discrimination by basing it on the, on the woman's past pay. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. So if we don't have 50 employees and no FMLA obligation, can we still provide employees unpaid time off for maternity or paternity leave? Yes. In some states, the, there are many FMLA types of programs, or there's now a lot of parental um, or maternity leave programs uh, across the country. So check your local state requirements. But I do run into organizations that say, well, I know I don't have to provide them 12 weeks off, but I want to. You certainly can almost always exceed the regulations. You just can never fail to meet the regulations. So, um, but what you want to think about is how are you going to design that policy? How are you going to communicate it and ensure it's consistent? FMLA provides coverage for both a father or mother. Gender doesn't matter. It can be paternity leave or maternity leave. And the reality is a lot of companies will write a policy for maternity only, 
And in a way, they're creating gender discrimination. So be very cautious in how you do it, but you certainly can establish a policy that would mimic FMLA, uh, but just before you're obligated to do it. That's a great question. Okay. Yeah. I used to live in Finland a few years ago, and holy cow, I think it was, I think I recall it was either 18 months or three years or something like that. It was uh, quite a bit of time, uh, very different from here. Europe does it right. There's a lot of uh, European laws and regulations. I remember working with GlaxoSmithKline and, and the UK, and they could be out for a year or two, and you still were required to put them back in the same position. So they definitely are more favorable for that. Um, there's a lot more resistance in the U.S. because it's it's more thinking about how much money I'm losing while the person's gone. Right, right. Okay, the next question, um, I know you touched on performance reviews uh, quite a bit, and so this question had to do with, um, they. this person does annual reviews, so um, they're asking how frequently should we conduct performance reviews. So they do them annually. So how, okay. how frequently should they do them? So um, there's no rhyme or reason or, or, or any kind of law around this, but consider what you need to know to make effective decisions about your workforce, whether you need to make decisions about providing training, coaching, or guiding guidance, or whether or not you need to tie it to compensation, quarterly payouts, bonuses, or whatnot. I highly recommend to have one-on-ones with a direct report no less than once a month. I usually recommend every other week and recognize the more frequently you do it, the more structured it becomes, the more effective the meetings become, and the shorter they become. So if you meet once every six months, it might end up being a three-hour meeting with someone very displeased about things that have been going on for six months. If you meet every two weeks, it might be a 30-minute check-in and only last 15 minutes if everybody's on the same page. So more frequently is more effective and you can catch problems sooner. Okay, um, the next one has to do with, this is, okay, um, I don't think that you touched on this. It says, how long should the probation period be for our new hires? Oh, funny question. So I, uh, I get a chuckle when I hear about probation because I also think about at-will employment. Um, if you have at-will employment, the, the, the idea of probation really doesn't have any foundation or need because you can terminate somebody for any reason at any time as long as it's not discriminatory. I find a lot of small organizations have probationary periods because they think that's what they need to do related to their benefits. So if they have a health care plan that kicks in at 90 days, they think they have to make their probationary period 90 days for the employee. They're really two separate topics. So I usually encourage not having a probationary period, but rather setting goals and holding people accountable in first 30, 60, 90 days and beyond with these every two weeks meetings. And there's no real true benefit about probation unless there's something they can't do during that period. And then um, recognize that if it's medically driven, then you're just talking about your eligibility waiting period. So um, I, I urge clients and, and businesses to get away from using a probationary period and more focus on actually setting goals and holding them accountable. Hmm. So um, they wouldn't have, so during this probation period that, that some often small businesses have, uh, mm -hmm. do, do they not have, would the new hires not have um, medical, medical insurance usually during that time period? Is that what you're saying? So some don't. So organizations that have um, uh, eligibility day one, if you're hired the first of the month, you're eligible for benefits and you go from there, 
they usually don't have a probation period in their handbook or in their policies because nothing caused them to think about the relationship that way uh, unless they've been burned by employees and they feel like they need something to um, leverage terminating somebody. But if they understand the laws and they understand at-will employment and they understand how their benefits work, they communicate more effectively that we have a 60-day waiting period for benefits, and that's all they're talking about. And, hey, if you don't perform, whether it's day 5, day 20, or day 320, we can terminate you. So it's really about the, the waiting period confusing some small business owners uh, around what probation means versus what waiting period is. Got it. Got it. All right. So the next one is... You had such a great, uh, a great presentation. We had um, some really, really interesting, great questions come in. So uh, if an employee requests we keep a uh, complaint confidential, can the process just end right there? No. Um, you have to be very cautious in how you handle complaints because while they may say, keep it confidential, I don't want you to do anything, I don't want anybody to get in trouble, um, the moment something keeps going wrong, and they feel that you're responsible for not stopping it, you would have failed to take appropriate action. The best way to handle that, if, if, if an employee comes into you to talk about an issue or concern, you let them know, one, you're obligated under policy and practice to report this to us if you have those policies. Um, but whatever you report, I may or may not be able to keep it confidential. So if you come in and tell me you're having a really bad day and you don't like the snow, the snowstorm going on, okay, I'll keep that confidential all day long. Um, but if you come in and tell me that Tommy and Mary were in the hallway doing something inappropriate sexually, and then you've been a, you know, you you were exposed to that, I have to take action. I have to protect the workforce. Otherwise, I could be at significant risk later for failing to do so. So when an employee really is striving to say, please don't tell anybody. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. It's kind of an art and science to give them the confidence that you're required to take action to protect that individual and others. And that you'll do your best to keep everything confidential throughout that process, but you do need to take action to uh, protect the business and protect the employees. Right. Right. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, um, going along that idea, how often should there be harassment prevention uh, training? So if you if you haven't done it in the past, you should do it all hands, all employees mandatory training so that everybody has a level set on the policies and practices and gives it given an idea of what these scenarios mean and, and when they should report it and what, what what's legal, what's illegal, what's policy, what's not policy. Uh, but then I suggest you do it at least annually or at a minimum biannually. There's way too much information that can go on and changes in your workforce. Uh, to not do this uh, biannually at a minimum, but I recommend annually. But the refresher training could be a PowerPoint presentation. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, instructor-led. I just always encourage that you have a, a quiz or some type of learning outcome that that person has to complete and sign uh, to kind of avoid having to stand in front of, you know, having to be maybe in front of me for an hour and a half learning about harassment prevention. Um, instead, they can kind of, the refresher can be shorter. You should also incorporate harassment prevention and all kinds of uh, bullying prevention, violence prevention, at orientation. So every new hire coming in should get it, and then on a regular basis, there should be a refresher training for everyone. Good, and I have one other question. Um, I've heard a lot about uh, mandatory paid leave. Um, could you tell me anything more about that? Absolutely. It's a trend across the country. Maryland just launched it. Philadelphia has it. Some, some jurisdictions in Jersey, 
Uh, Arizona has some. It, it's really coming out everywhere. So um, the big movement is about sick time. And so there's a lot of uh, local, uh, state and local jurisdictions requiring businesses with so many people uh, to, with, with a certain number of employees, to either give unpaid sick time or accrue and earn paid sick time. Now, I haven't read any of the jurisdictions, regulations say that it ever has to be paid out, but you do have to start tracking, recording, issuing reports on paychecks, uh, and all these different jurisdictions accrue at different rates. Some accrue 30 hours, some 40, some over a certain amount of time, some over a certain duration of work hours. So really pay attention to your local uh, laws and regulations about whether or not this has been implemented, and then read the fine print around whether or not your current paid time off or sick and vacation policies already meet or exceed the requirements. Most of these laws will say, if your policies and procedures already provide this amount of, of time off for these reasons, then go ahead and you don't have to really change anything. The trick here though, Catherine, is that some, some of these policies include not just sick time, but domestic violence victim, uh, victim of a crime and other types of leave or illness situations. So supervisors who aren't well-trained may deny time off because of operational needs and not realize that they were mandatorily required to approve the time off because of the reason. And it's scary because we don't really want supervisors and managers involved in the personal lives of our employees. We don't want HIPAA violations. We don't want PHI violations. We want to protect everybody's privacy and, and data and information. But you need to sometimes have a process that digs deeper unless you're certain your policy covers it. So it can get complex, and you want to review this with your HR professionals, how they're handling these local uh, laws if it is in place in your jurisdiction. Huh. Okay. Well, thanks for that explanation. Uh, um, sure. That. Okay. So, um, well, we have your contact information there on the screen, and I uh, wanted to thank you so much, Warren, um, for joining us today. And My pleasure. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to thank our attendees so much for joining us. And uh, did you have any other uh, any other final thoughts there? Um, just recognize that the moment you start hiring employees and people, that that's when you start running the risks uh, because we're all wonderfully unique. And while we can all help the business, we also can potentially unintentionally uh, become a risk for the business. So uh, be aware of that and do the best you can to make it the best workplace possible. Great. All right. Well, um, so attendees, uh, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Uh, you can also send us any questions. We'll forward them on. Uh, uh, after this, this page closes, you'll see um, my email, which will be um, communications at firsthcc.com. Um, you can also uh, uh, request uh, you can also register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com. You can call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate that.